0: There's a poem that I like that I was reflecting on early this morning. It begins how do I love thee let me count the ways for those who love romantic poetry that's uh, Elizabeth Browning I think it's sonnet 43. I was reflecting on the Lord's love for me how deep it is. It's like a it's like a quiet little pool that I find in solitude often. And every time that I dive in, I can never find the bottom. I can never plumb the depths. It surely surrounds me and saturates me and envelops me. It buoys me like water does. But the depth of that love is its a mystery I think we will have the joy of discovering for all eternity. And as I was thinking on that, I was thinking about how I love Jesus and what I love about him. I remember how he was when I first met him and I remember how I was. I was not lovely. I was hateful. I was full of arrogance and bitterness and pride. I had taken the treasures that he had put into my life and just voided them almost systematically. So here I am, broken, bankrupt. And there he is in his incalculable majesty, a beauty that makes you feel like you'll just go blind when you look at it. He's so good. And then you're struck by the gaping maw of that chasm that you could never bridge. How do you get there? How do you get to that magnificence? Desperate, dirty, and despicable as you are, as I was. Well, the short answer, obviously, is you don't. You can't. You can't bridge the gap. But he can. And he did. See, the way that he came to me was through his humility. That's what I want to talk about today. Turn with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2. We'll start in verse five, I love the humility of the Lord. Verse five in Philippians two says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. I love, you know, I love words. I love the word attitude. I used to hate it when I was a kid because probably more than anything else, that's what I got in trouble for the most. You can look at me and tell, whether we're singing praises or if you're telling me a story about how your week was, you know, my face is like a big flashing billboard of whatever it is I'm thinking and feeling. I should never, ever play poker. That's obvious. So attitude, I don't know if you know this or not, but it is a physical term. Did you know that? Yeah. In an airplane, there's literally an instrument that's called your attitude, and it tells you where the plane is in space, how it's postured or positioned, and the attitude determines direction, altitude, see? So the word attitude is the same except it's figurative instead of literal. It's not our posture. It's it's the posture of our hearts, right? Right? Your attitude is what you're inclined towards, the way you're pointing, what you're likely to do, you see? So we're to have the same attitude that Jesus had is what this is saying here in Philippians. And it's going to describe it in verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now there's a lot that's packed into that little verse. First of all, understand that in the beginning, that is, before our beginning, before Genesis, there is the beginning that we get in the first of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. That's time immemorial. That's before time and space and matter. It's before man and the earth and all of that. Jesus was not always subservient to the Father. There was a time, according to Scripture, we heard from Colossians, we see it here in Philippians, you can find it in other places in the Bible, where he was equal with the part of the Godhead that we call the Father, the one who is our Father. But that person was not the Father yet, because the other person of the Godhead, don't let this be too complicated, had not yet become a son. There was the Word that was with God, follow? Right. That means that there was no lesser glory for him. When we see all of these passages, like when you read in Revelations and you see the description of this radiant glory that is stunning, that we could literally not stand to experience or gaze upon in this flesh, it would burn us up. It is so awesome. That's how Jesus was before he became Jesus, the one who was the Word. He existed in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, again I say, here I am. I'm in trouble. There's no hope. I'm dead in my sins. And even if I have a desire to do right, I do not possess the power to carry that out. If I am judged by the standard, which is the holy law of liberty. The standard is not just a set of rules and guidelines. Please understand that. It is the wrong way to look at things, to think that it's just the code of the Ten Commandments. Those commandments describe a person. You see? They reflect who God is. That's what they are. The reason for the Sabbath day is because of who God is. That's why it existed before creation was, and that's why it will continue to exist even without a sun to set, understanding the new heavens and the new earth, there will still be Sabbath, as Isaiah 66 makes clear. That's a part of who God is. It's a great mystery. I don't claim to understand it. Maybe I catch a glimpse here and there, but that reflects who the Lord is, you see. And we feel a bit of that when we enter into the Sabbath of rest. But it's the same. Think about not bearing false witness. Why? Because Jesus is the truth. That's why. So when we lie, when we practice and participate with a lie, you see, we don't just step over a boundary of a moral code. We transgress a person. Because Jesus is the truth, you see. It reflects his glory. All of the commandments are like that. When you think about stealing, that's, that's counter to who he is because he is a giver. That is his nature to give. That's how he is. And so he didn't regard the glory, the opulence, that he had something to hold on to. Would he be right? While I'm helpless, hopeless, without God in this world, lost in my sin, doomed to be destroyed in the lake of fire, I earned it. As we all have fallen short of the glory of God, our paycheck is death and destruction. It's justice. But he provided something better for all who would. That's what John 3.16 says. He loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever will, if you're just willing, we should not perish but have everlasting life. It would be right for Him to keep what was rightfully His, all of that glory, His place. He wasn't in turmoil. He was at peace like the Sabbath represents. He wasn't drowning in a sea of lies. I was. He was in a place of perfect, clear perspective. Do you know what it's like to long for that? Do you know what it's like to feel like your mind is just just a knotted up mess and to long for that clarity? He had it. He didn't have to step down into this chaos and pain. He didn't have to give up all that he had in order to take on my mess, but he did because of an attitude, a proclivity, a posture, of humility. And while he was being humbled, he didn't esteem himself lesser, understand. Like when we hear the word humility, a lot of times we think, well, that means thinking little of yourself. That's not exactly right. Now, I like the way D.L. Moody said it when he was giving a message on humility, and one of the people in the audience came up to him thereafter, and they said, now, if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that when you are humble, you just don't think too much of yourself. And he said, no. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that when you're humble, you don't think of yourself at all. It's a very powerful thing. Let's, let's be clear. There was never a greater sacrifice made than giving all of that up. It's not even possible. Because who ever had that much? Right, only him. Only the Father ever had someone like Jesus to give up. And only Jesus ever had all glory, all honor, all praise in the courts of heaven being just bathed in the praises of the heavenly hosts. But I was screaming in this maddening chasm of darkness, hopeless and drowning and doomed to destruction, and he said, I'll go, because his attitude was humble. If it weren't, his mind would have been on him, but it wasn't. It was so much on me, the Father's mind was so much on me, that he said, I'll give Jesus. And Jesus' mind was so much on me that he said, I'll, I'll take that on. I'll come and be that. Verse 7, it says that he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. There has never been a greater step down. No one has ever condescended more. No one has ever given up so much. To come down into my mess. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think about all that he laid down to come to this world. Everything about it was humble. The point that I'm making in looking at this is that it's his humility that left to come after and rescue me. If he weren't humble, he couldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. His mind would have been on him and keeping what he had. That's the crucial difference. If you want to boil things right down to the bare essence... And you want to see the difference between how Satan is and how God is. God is a giver. Love. That's the way love is. Satan is a taker. Hate. Satan is about himself. God is about others. That's the crucial difference. So if his eyes weren't on us, he would never have left all of that. It would have been too dear to him. He would have been like the rich young ruler. He would have lamented too much about the riches that he was leaving behind. But that's not where his mind was. His mind was on what riches he could bestow on me. And he decided that it was worth it to give everything. And you think about the span of his lifetime. I'm stupefied when I reflect on it. When you see... It was mentioned earlier, the Mount of Transfiguration. That's where Peter, James, and John got the slightest glimpse of his glory. The same kind of glimpse that Isaiah got when he witnessed him in the temple in that train. The same thing that John was able to see to whom Jesus delivered the book of Revelation that caused him to fall down as if he were a dead man. He had that sort of glory. And yet his humility, that attitude that he had toward me, was willing to give up everything, to come and be born as a lowly peasant boy, really, in a, in a nowhere town, to a nobody family. I've said it before, but it's worth repeating. If Jesus showed up in shocking glory and magnificence, with shouts and trumpets, with royal array and a mighty host around him, he would be right. He's the king of glory, but he didn't come that way. So humble. His humility came for me. If he didn't have it, I would be lost. If you want to see what's operating, where it says that Not only was he found in appearance like a man, he was fully man. He was obedient to death on a cross. What kind of death is that? You know, it's the most brutal death that man has ever devised, first of all. Understand that when he's looking at that, as we heard earlier today, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's just had that beautiful moment with his disciples, which we'll look at in a moment. And now there's nothing ahead of him. Just this one deep breath before the plunge. He's known his whole life. This moment was waiting for him. Begins pressing on him. The name of the garden is Gethsemane. It means olive press. Begins to press. Sometimes Jesus would pray standing, lifting his hands up like we see when he's blessing the food. That's not what's happening in Gethsemane. He's bowed down says he just falls on his face, and he prays if there's some other way. He's looking ahead to the cross. The word says that he was despising the shame, and that's my shame. That's the shame I earned. See, the cross isn't just physically painful. It's not just torture. It's also public humiliation. He would be stripped naked and put on that cross. He hated the shame, but his humility put him in the place where even in the garden where he's begging, and it's so heavy on him that his blood is coming out with his sweat. It's literally capillaries bursting under the skin, blood mingling with the sweat. There is no greater pressure your body can be under. He said, I feel like I'm dying, and he wasn't a complainer, right? That's the weight of the pressure that was on him, the sin of all mankind. And he was begging if there was some way to save us, to save me, without having to go through that, to let the cup pass from him. But here's what humility said in that moment in the garden But not not my will, your will be done. Do as we agreed. Do what seems right to you. Have it your way, not my way. Even if that means a pain that I can't even face right now. I can't keep thinking about it. Every time it wells up in my heart, it drives me to my face, and I beg you to spare this flesh, this body. I want to live. I don't want to go through that. But there was no other way, you see. You can't actually love people without being humble. It's impossible. See, the opposite of humility is pride. Pride is selfish. Pride is looking out for me. If I'm proud, I'm trying to spare my feelings. I'm trying to be sure my rights are protected. I'm trying to be positive that I get what is due to me, whether that be respect or whatever the thing is. You can't love like that. Humility will suffer a wrong. Jesus didn't deserve that. I deserved it. Jesus will lay down his glory so that I can be a partaker in it in order to rescue me. Let's go to Luke chapter 4. You'll be familiar with this account. See, humility left heaven. It didn't cling to what was his right. All of the glory, all the honor, all the praise. He didn't hold on to it. He laid it down. And the next thing that I reflected on, when I was thinking about how I love Jesus. I was thinking about how he set me free, because I remember what it is to be a captive. I knew what it was to struggle like it was when Abraham took Isaac up to the top of the mountain to worship the Lord, knowing the Lord had told him that he was to lay Isaac, his promised child, his miracle baby that he had waited for so long and loved so deeply that the Lord said, you give him to me, sacrifice him to me. And I can't even imagine what it is as a father to have your son look up at you with those eyes and say, but where's the sacrifice, Daddy? And how he just said, the Lord will provide. And in that moment, he saw a ram that was caught in a thicket, just thrashing around and being ripped to shreds by all of those thorns. That was me. That was me when the Lord found me. That's exactly how I was. I was trapped in sin. I was hurting so much that I was just blinded by it and struggling and struggling. And with each spasm, I was getting more and more entangled. And I was dying the death of a thousand cuts. But you see, the Father provided a sacrifice for me. And that was his precious son, Jesus. And that humility set me free from those bonds, you see. And that's what we have here. Now, you know what came before verse 1 in chapter 4. You know that Jesus went to John and he was baptized so that he would do everything right. Not because he had any sin, but you see, he had to be a faithful high priest for us. He had to do everything to prepare the way for us. And so that's what he told John. John was like, I can't do this. I need to be baptized by you. And he said, this has to be so to fulfill all righteousness. And so he consented. And then immediately afterwards, you know, the Holy Spirit came down in a bodily form like a dove, rested on him. And immediately, I'm struck by this, so I'll just share it in the moment. It often seems to be like this. The moment that preceded this moment was a moment where he was transfigured, was a moment, think about this now, this mountaintop experience where he gets Peter, James, and John, and they travel up this mountain, and at the top, the Lord's, the Father's voice comes down as they see Moses and Elijah there and Jesus in his glory is transformed before them. But Here's the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What's that? What's that? To Jesus, what is that? That is your daddy saying, I love you, son. That's what beloved son means. I love you, son, and I'm very pleased with you. That's a high. Like Blake was talking about. That's a moment of ecstasy. I guarantee you, Peter, James, and John never forgot that moment. And Jesus needed that moment. Then, immediately baptized, where is he taken? He's pulled, impelled. It should be the word. Some versions render it compelled. He wasn't pushed into the wilderness. That's wrong. He was pulled into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted, to be tested. Now, here's the thing. Satan is an enemy. None of us has the power to put down. We can't beat him. All history proves it, all of it. Walk it right back to Adam. You're not winning that fight in the flesh. Jesus came and laid himself down. That was the moment here as we pick up in verse 1 where he's impelled out into the wilderness. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, that's where he was baptized, and he was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. I just want to point this out. We think, sometimes I think, that he was weakened out there in the wilderness, and then as a crescendo at the very end of it, then he was tempted and tried. And certainly we have the conversation. We see the battle between him and Satan in the wilderness. But the word says that he was tempted the whole time. I don't know what that means. I think Mark renders it amongst the wild beasts, you know, as demons are sometimes referred to. The whole time was pain and suffering when he was pulled out there. He ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended he became hungry, so he's weakened. And the devil said to him, verse 3, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him and said, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Now, this it may as well be just a microcosm of our lives. We just lose these battles. We all know what it's like. Look, we're all strong when the sun is shining and things are good. Isn't that true? Right. I know this, this will probably be uh, close to home for all of us. We're strong when we're together. When we have these moments of worship and our hearts swell with joy and love and we just feel like we can't even contain it. What about when we don't have that? We're strong when Jesus is us, right next to us. But when he seems to be a stone's throw away. So Jesus is fighting Satan, but he's doing it being weakened. And it's necessary. You know the scripture. You can't plunder a strong man's house unless you first bind the strong man. That's what Jesus said. Who's the strong man? Satan. What's his house? This world. He's the God of this world and this age. What is he plundering? Me, and you, and you. I pray that that's true. If not, today's a good day for you. It can be true for you today. So this had to be done. He had to do it. So Satan attacks again, verse 5. He led him up and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time. And the devil said, look, I'll give you all this domain and its glory. For it's been handed over to me and I give it to whoever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Now, don't think that's not a temptation, because understand, involved in that offering is skip the cross. And we know that's a temptation of the flesh that Jesus had to conquer, because he said, if there's any way that this can pass from me, let it pass. Well, here's a way Satan is offering. The problem is, as Jesus knows, that We would be lost. All of this hope, the rescue would be over. Forget about it. So he puts us ahead and he wins. He says, look, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they'll bear you up so that you won't strike your foot against a stone. Now, I don't want to get too deeply into this, but we know each one of these things is a temptation to doubt who he was. In this case, it is a doubt that your daddy loves you and will take care of you. We are all tempted in that way, aren't we? When things are hard, when we lose our job, when the economy tanks, we start worrying, God, are you going to provide for me? when we're tested in our health and we have a health trial and we don't have the physical strength that we ordinarily do, we wonder whether or not God is going to provide for us. Well, here, Jesus is being tempted in the same way. But he won, though. And he's answered and he said, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Understand, this was what Jesus was doing in order to set you and me free. These are our bonds that he is breaking. And he had to go toe-to-toe with Satan in order to do it in a weakened condition. When everything inside his body was screaming for the relief that Blake was talking about, he had to refuse relief. Because if he had served his flesh in that moment, which, by the way, is what selfishness would do. It was humility that went all the way that sacrificed at each one of these moments. And we all know how difficult it is because we have all fallen under this same sort of temptation. And so he defeated the devil. That's the moment. I don't want us to miss this fact, so let's just keep reading. Verse 14, And Jesus returned then after that. He went to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, And the news about him spread through all the surrounding district. I want to point out a paradox. I don't know how many times the Lord did this through the Scripture. Many. He showed us that humility is more powerful than pride. Look, in the showdown that we were just looking at, what was it? It was Satan who's full of pride. He's the author of it. He started it. He infected mankind with it. That's who was fighting against humility. That's Jesus, the giver, the one who would sacrifice everything. We think intuitively, just like every person has always thought, a bigger army will win, but the Lord will do it with humble forces. He'll just use 300 to put to flight thousands and tens of thousands. You see, we think in our flesh that the strength that you find in a giant who's been trained in war from the time that he was a little boy would certainly win a fight with any little tiny peasant boy, little shepherd. We are wrong. You see, the humility of David who fought not for self, but for God and the honor of his name overcame that giant, you see. And it's always like that. So here it is. You've got Satan with all of that power. Humility put him down. It won that fight. And because he won that fight, it set me free and you free. So when he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, the news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues, and he was praised by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, was his hometown. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. I love this moment. This is a declaration of war, by the way, to all the forces of evil and Satan. But it was the trump of my salvation. This was the sound of the Calvary coming in for me, to my rescue. He could only do this, what he's about to do, because of what he had done in the wilderness. It reminds me so much of the scripture, you humble yourself before the Lord under his mighty hand. He will exalt you. If you humble yourself, then you can defeat Satan. He will flee from you. And that's the example of how that works. Jesus did that through humility. And he couldn't have set me free or you free without having done it. So he's invited here at the synagogue to come up and read the Torah portion. So he asked for the scroll of Isaiah. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written. This is on purpose. He chose this scripture. This scripture was literally written by Isaiah hundreds of years before for this moment. And so here's Jesus, and he stands up, and he says in verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. I'm the poor. You're the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives. I was a captive. You were a captive. And recovery of sight to the blind. That's healing. He accomplished that with the same thing. To proclaim, to set free all of those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. See, that's connected. He never could have won that battle for you and for me, he never could have come to me except that he chose not to think of himself. His focus was on me. Now, when you say that Jesus is humble, you're not saying that he thought of himself lowly. It's the same with you and me. If you're humble, it's not because you wrongly have a a, a bad estimate of who you are. No. And Jesus always knew. Think about the things that he prayed. Father, I know that you always hear me. But I'm praying this out loud so that everyone else will know. You see, he always knew that he was the son of God. He understood that he had come from heaven. He told people, he said, look, before Abraham was, I am. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He knew exactly who he was, but his mind was not on him. His mind was on me and you. And so he suffered all of the pain, all of the hardships, all of the indignities that he suffered his whole life. All the jeers and sneers and sideways looks and all the accusations, all of that. Because he wasn't thinking about us, about him. He was thinking about us. That was his humility. So not only did Jesus leave everything, give it all up because he was humble, He defeated Satan. You see, that's a declaration to me. Those are the most beautiful words. When we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound, the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's what I think about. I think about the proclamation of the gospel. I think about how he proclaimed my freedom. No longer to be ashamed, but now made whole, made pure, made holy. No longer an outcast, no longer separated, no longer an orphan, but now a beloved, the bride of Christ, the son of the living God. That's what he gave to me. Let's go to John chapter 13. Shane, if I ask you nicely, will you turn one of those vents towards me? I seem to be emitting heat. John chapter 13, thank you, verse 5. Now, I, I know we think about this a lot, especially at the Passover. That's much better, thank you. Is that making any of you guys too hot? Let me know. <laughs> no, says Treon, with icicles hanging off, teeth chattering, shivering. <laughs> I know we look at this. This literally was the progression of my thoughts as I was meditating this morning. That was what I thought about first, was how all that Jesus had left and how he never could have done that if he was thinking about him. He never could have. He was thinking about me. And then immediately I was thinking of how many times I had been just beaten up by the devil, so many times, till till I was disoriented and just weak and wobbly and just a sad, sullen, gelatinous mass is all I was. But he broke those chains, you see. And then I realized what humility it took for him to undergo that because he gave everything up to do that. I don't even know. Now you guys know it can be beautiful and you can be singing a song with a spring in your step and everything's fine and then a trial hits you, maybe it's a physical attack, certainly it's a spiritual attack, and when those clouds cover you and you fall into that pit, it's like the sun never shined. It's like there never was happiness or joy. And you can be, as Blake was describing, you know, I used to do some white water canoeing, I didn't do kayaking. In Alabama, there were some pretty heavy-duty rapids on the Coosa and the Tallapoosa, and we had to watch out particularly for areas where there were what they called hydraulics, which is sort of like if you imagine what it looks like when you let the water out of your tub, which is no big deal. But, you know, when it's the size of this room, it's a big deal because it can take you down, and what it will do is just grind you against all of those rocks and things. You can't get up. It's not like regular water where you just pop up, get a breath of air. It keeps pushing you down against those rocks, and a lot of guys, people die and that sort of thing. That's what I was thinking about with those breakers. Well, that's exactly how it was being in sin and without God, without the Holy Spirit. That was the experience, just being pummeled over and over again. So I think about the humility of Jesus, and the next thing that came to my mind was how he stooped down, and he made me clean. This is the moment of that. Verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover... Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. During supper, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, and Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. He got up from supper, and he laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Now I know that physically speaking, we weren't there. I recognize that. But I also recognize that in the Spirit, we were. And we are every year when we do foot washing, when we come for Passover when we're washing each other's feet. That's Jesus in you washing my feet. That's Jesus in me washing your feet. And I don't know that it's possible for us to understand. I was trying to think of what this is like. It would be shocking. You know, we were thinking about the prodigal son, I think in a recent message that pastor was giving, should be called the prodigal father. Prodigious means big. They say prodigal son because of what his older brother accused him of, said, you know, he's wasted your fortune on living large, prodigiously, prodigal. But I like to think of how big the love is of the father, the prodigal father that would run after him and restore him the way that he did. So I was trying to think of what does it look like For the king of glory, one who is pure and holy, to kneel down at my nasty feet. So I know what my feet are dirty with. I understand that. You know, I can remember well the kind of man that I was before the Lord found me. And I was full of wickedness. Just, well, full of the devil, be a right way to put it. I was thinking, like, what if you had an appointment to meet Trump before he became president and you walked into Trump Tower which is some of the most expensive real estate in the world there in New York and this building is just stunning and all of the appointments are as opulent as billionaires can make them and you went in to use the bathroom and you found Trump in there cleaning the the floor what if he were just kneeling down and scrubbing the toilets like that would be shocking This is what Jesus is doing. You know, this was the lowest job that there was, and it was one of the greatest pictures of humility that I've ever seen. So it's shocking. I don't want us to miss that. And Jesus knew what time it was, so the timing is important. He's not messing around. He's thought about this day his whole life. He's got one chance to impart something to his disciples before he must suffer and go. So he doesn't want to waste this moment, this precious moment. They had all of the sweetness of the engagement, which is what it is, a betrothal to share your body and your blood, as he did that night betrothing himself to us, the bride, the church. Those are the pillars of the New Testament church. But now this moment of sweetness is over and now it's all business because he's about to be struck and the sheep are going to be scattered. He's got one punch. He's not going to miss. He's going to make it count. So this is what he does. He takes up a towel and he girds himself. And then he poured water into the basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. This act of love. You see how... It took humility for him to have this kind of love that is covering a multitude of sins. You see, if he held to what was right, he'd have to be high and elevated, and we would be kneeling at his feet. That's right. But he wasn't like that. He was thinking about us, so he knelt down at the feet. And you see here, verse 6, he said, he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus said to him, what I do, you don't realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And so Simon Peter said, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean but not all of you, because he knew the one that was betraying him, and for this reason he said, you're not all clean. The point of this is, this was making me clean. See, it's one of the most precious things that I have. If you can lay hold of that truth, it will change everything. Instead of walking around repeating that broken record of how you're a mistake Instead of starting every prayer, begging the Lord to forgive you, you will be able to understand that it's His righteousness you stand in, that there is no record of wrongs against you, that our names, this is what Jesus told His disciples to rejoice in, are written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus' life is recorded as our life. That's what the Bible says. He came to be our sin so that we could become his righteousness. Your record is his record, you see. His record was our record. That's why he suffered the way that he did. He did that in order to make me clean. And Peter's response was the same thing that we all naturally want to do. It's so hard to let him do that. But it's impossible, isn't it? To be who you're supposed to be in the Lord, unless you do. That's what He told Peter. You can't have any part with Me unless you let Me do it. And that statement, this is before the Passover. You are clean. You see, He'd come to make us clean. As we sang today, that blood it washes us white as snow. No matter what, it doesn't matter what sins you've committed and what vile wickedness has poured out of you in your past. Jesus suffered, and that sacrifice was more than enough, far more than enough. I think of the example of how the priest's feet hit the Jordan that flowed down to death. Jordan meaning judgment flowing down to death, that when the priest's feet hit that water and they were carrying the presence of God, that ark, that it rolled judgment back all the way from death, all the way back to Adam. It was more than sufficient. It covered all of the sins, all of them. The only reason that any person will stand condemned under the judgment is if they choose not to be washed by that blood. If they choose to try to climb up some other way or selfishly cling to their own strength, it's a gift. You cannot earn it. But Jesus' sacrifice was more than enough, even as Hebrews points out, to cleanse our consciousness. I do not know how to communicate how, how powerful, how personally precious that is to me. Because that's very difficult, especially as I've, I've told you before. I, I feel like the Apostle Paul who said, I'm less than the least of all of the apostles. I remember what manner of man that I was persecuting the church of God. I remember how I was. I was a blasphemer. I was full of arrogance and pride and anger and hatred. And it would probably cripple me, paralyze me to carry that. Jesus' sacrifice was enough that it cleansed my conscience. And he tells me, like he told Treon, don't bring that up. I don't want to hear about it. I'm not thinking about it. I don't want you thinking about it. So, verse 12, it said that when he had washed their feet and he took his garments and he reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. You're right, for so I am. But if I then, the Lord and your teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. But I gave you an example that you should do as I did. I'm telling you, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master or the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So he said that the reason he did that was so that we would follow that example. And I want to show you something that's connected to that. So understand that we were all there, and he washed our feet. He stooped at our feet, the King of glory. One of the most beautiful things I know in all of Scripture is how the woman knelt at Jesus' feet and anointed his feet, washed them with her tears, dried with her hair. That's the same loving picture that Jesus is doing when he's washing our feet. But he's saying that you should be humble like this. This is how you show love. Put yourself lower. Serve one another, just like I do. Do that, be like that. Now just skip ahead to verse 34. They're connected. Jesus shows this tremendous act of humility by washing us I'll just back up to 33 he says little children I'm with you a little while longer you'll seek me and as I said to the jews now I also say to you where I'm going you cannot come he's pointing out look this is my these are my last moments I don't have that many opportunities so what I'm telling you is important he says in verse 34, I'm going to give you a new commandment, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, love one another. You see, he gave that object lesson before this commandment. That's the only way that it can be done. Now, when you look at that, does it strike you the difference between how humble Jesus is and how prideful we can be? Man, I was telling Blake, I was, you know, I work with Blake, so he has to listen to me jabber a lot, and I really enjoy his company. I was telling him that I was very tempted to entitle a message, uh, How to Kill Yourself. I know that sounds horrible. Of course, I would never write. But I do mean it, though, because literally the self has got to die. That's what the Word says. That It's the flesh, it's that body of death that's behind you that must die. Do you ever, when you're emulating Jesus, it could be something small. This shows you the great gap that's between him and me, say, that what if I feel slighted in a conversation? I'm talking, but I don't get to finish my point. There's an interruption, right? And I really want to express my point. Like, I'm dying to express my point. I'm not satisfied unless I get all the way to the conclusion of the point. And if I'm midway toward the crescendo and I'm cut off, I got a choice, right? I mean, obviously, that sparks something in whomever I'm speaking to. And they want to express a point. It hurts. I understand this shows the weakness that I have, but it hurts me. I die a little. That's the truth. I really do. I die a little bit, and I think well, here's a service that I can render. I'll just let that be. Why why not let this be about how I can serve them in this conversation and let them speak, right? Or it's the same thing in a million different ways, right? It's not maybe your turn to clean the kitchen or pick up the clothes. You know, things should be fair, right? But it always seems to be you. Now, in that moment, you've got a choice. You can go either way. I mean, think about it. It's like every moment in Jesus' life is a moment that he's choosing. That's what I'm getting at. Humility is literally a choice you make. The scripture says, as Jesus is talking, he says, this is what you must do. You take up your cross. You have a cross. Every day, daily, every day. Take it up. Get up there. Die slowly. Put your flesh to death every day. Gasping, And if you find yourself in the flesh crawling off of the cross, get back up on the cross and keep dying. The flesh does not die fast, it dies slow. It doesn't go easy, it goes hard. It takes a million different decisions over your lifetime to kill that body of death that's dragging along with us this whole time. That, I think, is the reason when I reflect on all that the Lord has given to me, and he's given me so much more than I would have even had the temerity to ask him for. I see that a lot of the work of the hardships, as Blake was describing, the the suffering that has been my lot and my portion to endure, has been directly aimed at breaking my pride, and my arrogance. Like, what if there's a dispute between you and a person, right? And you're right, maybe not 100% right. Let's say that you're a little wrong. What if you're 98% right? And they are 2% right. Can you kill yourself? Can you let the self die? Can you be a peacemaker in that moment? Like Paul said, well, why not be wronged then? Why not suffer the wrong? Isn't that what Jesus did? All right, to make peace with me, who was the aggressor? Me. Who was guilty? I was guilty. Who was in the wrong? I was in the wrong. Who was right? He was right. He wasn't guilty of anything. To make peace with me because there wasn't peace, he laid himself down. See, that's what propitiation means. He absorbed the wrath. He took the hit. And that's how it is when we do, and only humility will do that. So it's very like every other thing that the Lord gives to us. See, this it's a little frustrating to me. I'll just be honest. I get to the end of the day, and I see the little petty ways that I will work situations to my own ends. I don't mean to do it. I'm just saying it's so entrenched in our nature, it's, it feels a little impossible to entirely get rid of. It's kind of like you get up and the stupid thing is like, I thought I killed you yesterday. You know, it's a long fight. Or the little petty ways that I'll exact revenge on people. Sometimes it's but withholding things from them. You can do that too, you know. And that's the flesh, like that's a pride, demanding your own. I've said that I don't know how many times. I just wanted to get a little of my own back. I've had enough. That foot has been on my neck for the last time. I am not a doormat. That's pride. We know where that's going to lead. That's what Satan was full of. That's what led him to his destruction. And that's the Pied Piper that's been calling everyone to their destruction after Satan ever since. And it feels good in the flesh, doesn't it? It's very satisfying. But it doesn't love. It doesn't cover a multitude of sins. What about the prodigal father? So when the sun comes over the horizon, pride would have said, go, you're dead to me. I'll have nothing to do with you. You can't just trample on me. You think you can stand here in front of me, tell me you wish I were dead, take my stuff, ruin my reputation in the big city down there, and you're running back to me. you got another thing coming. That's what pride would have done. And you know what? He wouldn't have been in the wrong. He was unjustly treated. Who was in the wrong? The prodigal son. Who was full of hate? The prodigal son. But the father didn't demand his rights. His father's mind was not on him. It was on his son. He saw his son bankrupt. Look, he saw me. That was me. So he expressed humility. He had that attitude. The same attitude that was in Jesus that would lay everything down. But just like we're given a measure of faith. Now, it's up to us, just like with talents, to exercise that faith. Decision by decision, moment by moment, day by day, year after year, decade after decade, until Jesus comes back, or, excuse me, and we're changed in a twinkling of an eye, or until we breathe our last breath, and then we rise to meet him. The more that we invest our faith in each decision in that moment, I can be full of dread and fear in this moment, or I can put my confidence in God. I might put my confidence in the flesh, or how much money's in my bank account, or how much I can bench press, or whatever, how many hair follicles I have upon my head or I can put my confidence in the Lord. And every decision that you make to act in faith, that is a choice that you make. Your faith grows while you exercise it until you become full of faith. That's how that works. And it's exactly the same way with humility. Well, how often are you killing yourself? How often do you put that old man, woman to death? in these little opportunities that you're given. It hurts every time. It's agony. I'm ashamed to tell you there have been sometimes only a few, just a handful, like this hand, not so many, where it's taken me, well, in the case of my mother, years. Like, I just have to keep putting that down. I was hurt. I was wronged. It's left me scarred. I have to deal with some of the fallout of that all the time, and it Bugs me to do it. It's difficult to do it. Now, the moment that I became a Christian, I began to pray for my mother and her forgiveness. And but I found out that it's not one of those things that it's one and done. It doesn't work that way. Because life will bring it up some other way, someplace that I was unaware of. It brings it back up. Now I have to do it again. And every time I die a little. But not me, not who I am in the Lord. My flesh dies a little. Because look, whatever kind of monster she was to me, it pales by comparison to the monster that I was to the Lord. Isn't that true? Was I more wronged than Jesus? See? It hurts. And sometimes I've had to ruminate on things that have felt like injustice and may genuinely have been injustice, but what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with it? Well, you can gratify the flesh, you can get your own back, you can withdraw, you can become cold, you can withhold your affection. You can lash out in your anger, you can cripple someone with your words, you can pierce them, you can hurt them the way that you've been hurt. You can do that. Pride will do that. The flesh certainly wants to do that. What does that do? Well, it drives you farther apart, kills a little, makes sin a little bit stronger, divides more, perpetuates the pain, the suffering, or you can be like the Lord. But it's a choice, though. But it's a choice. And I'm not saying we do it perfectly. I know we don't. I certainly don't. It's hard. But if I set myself in that direction, if I have that attitude, I mean, I'm glad he didn't say, have this perfectly carried out in your character to behave precisely as Jesus did. No, you have this attitude just saying, yes, Lord, that's all you're doing. Yes, Lord, I will again. Because how do you know? How do you know that this next little death that you die isn't the moment in the wilderness where you're setting somebody free? Like, that's one of the biggest things that's ever happened to me, being set free from those bonds. And I walk in freedom every day. And every time that the devil tries to put me back in shackles, I go back and remember I'm set free from those. I don't have to bow to that anymore. I am free. I walk in freedom. I have liberty in the Lord. I am free to love. I am free to rejoice and to sing. Even in the midst of trials and suffering, I am free. I'm not that man. That man died. But that liberty was precious bought, amen? Somebody had to do battle with Satan to get there. It's like staring at Mike Tyson in the ring. I could never handle him. Jesus alone ever could take him down. Well, it might be that moment for us is what's going to accomplish something good for somebody else. We just don't know. But when I think about how the Lord had to exercise that humility day after day, It's very difficult to imagine, and you can hear his frustration with even what you think of the mundane things, you know? It's people that he is coming only to love and deliver and set free, and all they can think about is stinking bread, or instead they're trying to trap him in something. Literally, he's there to save them. It's their maker. The one who formed them in their mother's womb is putting breath in their bodies, and they breathe that in, and then they breathe out vile and bitterness, and he breathes out, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. See, that's what it took. Well, that's what it takes for us too, and it can be very discouraging because you have to do the honest assessment, you have to look at it, but... I mean, the choice really is just one of two, isn't it? I mean, either we can choose to feed the flesh, which is gratifying for a moment. (laughs) You guys didn't know me before, but I mean, there was a time when I was living for the moment when someone would want to fight. Like, that's what I was about. Please do. I wanted to provoke things, whether that be verbal or physical, I wanted that. Like Paul, I was breathing threats and violence and murder. And I have given, I've gotten my own back, let's say, with my words, with my behavior. And look, I know exactly where that led to as well. I remember where I was and how hopeless and dark it was. And I didn't know, I wasn't flowing over with joy. I didn't have deep, meaningful relationships But the more of the humility of Jesus that's expressed through me, the more I choose not to indulge the flesh in that way, but rather let Jesus do what he wants to do. He's alive in me. He's living in me through the power of the Holy Spirit. So he has what he wants. He is as he is. He's humble. He wants to love. That love will cover a multitude of sins. It will wash my brother's and my sister's feet. Or there's Satan who is tugging on my flesh, that's his handle, which is that old dead man that I left in that watery grave, still twitching around his little cadaveric spasms, he's with me. And I can indulge that, but when I do, that spirit man dies a little bit, and chaos and destruction ensue. So I can either express Jesus, kill myself, and bring love, I can do that, Or I can express Satan, exalt myself, bring hate, pain, and destruction. So I don't know of anything more beautiful than the humility of Jesus, nothing that's more powerful, and nothing that I want to be like more. And that's the brass tacks, really the bottom line where the rubber meets the road. It's fine to know things. Like I want to know things. I'm a student. I study all kinds of stuff. It's almost ridiculous. So I believe in studying the Bible, you know, but I think ultimately when it's time for our lives to be measured here on this earth, when we cross the finish line, you know, it speaks of we can work whatever, we can do wood, hay, stubble, or precious things like fine gold refined in a fire. It's whatever we choose. I think that It's my choice. The Lord has left it to me. And really, it's just a matter of whether I will yield and surrender to him so that I can leave behind me the same kind of trail that he did. And I know that may sound mighty grand for a person to be saying, but it is in line with the Bible. Jesus said, as I am, so shall you be in this world. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. That's what he's put us here for. So I praise the Lord for that humility that was so strong, powerful, loving, and compassionate that came and rescued me, that set me free from my bonds, and has given me eternal life that I'm made holy and completely clean. And I pray that we all will seek to allow him to have his perfect work in us so that we can be just like that for our good and for his glory. Hallelujah. Michael, will you come close us in prayer?